a man without ethics is a wild beast loosed upon this world. Welcome to Wild Beasts, a podcast about ethics. Has social media stripped us of our agency? How can we use these platforms with intentionality? Today's episode features a panel conversation with several professionals at the Markula Center. Arena Reku is the Director of Internet Ethics. Subu Vincent is the Director of Media and Journalism Ethics. And Don Heider is the Executive Director at the Markula Center. I'm Courtney Davis. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome. I just wanted to first ask where all of you stand on social media, if it's something that you use or engage with, especially in the context of the Markless Center, maybe you, you can speak to where and how you use social media and in what capacity. So maybe I can start. Um, I'm the director of the Internet Ethics Program, and as such, I've been looking at the impacts of social media on society for uh, the last 11 years now. Um, um, and I am also definitely a user of social media of a number of platforms, though not all of them, and intentionally so. Um, and as a parent of two kids who grew up dealing with social media, so I, I, I look at it through, through a variety of sort of lenses, um, I think to me, the, the, the question of overusing social media, um, it feels, you know, more personal than others, right? Because I, I feel that in myself and I think we all do. And that's why we want to talk about it today. Thank you. And Subu, I know you also have, you play a role in the Marcos Center social media, correct? Yeah. So um, I'm directing journalism and media ethics. Um, and for me, the, the lens on social media really comes because of the interaction between journalism, journalistic work, as well as journalists as people, as well as people who are doing journalism who don't call themselves journalists, like citizens and uh, technical people, sometimes lawyers, administrators, and so on, uh, and, and th their interaction with social media to spread the word, to engage with others. So the interest in social media primarily comes from what I would call the collision of journalism and social media itself. Yeah, I think it would be difficult to be in my position as executive director and not be on social media, you know, and, and fairly active on it. So, um, but we also have a staff here, you know, that help us post and promote activities of the center and, and materials we produce. But, you know, I mean, I see, you know, there's sort of four or five uses for me in terms of social media. One is connecting with people, either personally, you know, through people I've known over the years or professionally. You know, um, I have a lot of connections on LinkedIn and I use that as a way to reach out to people and also, um, you know, as a resource for the center and what the center is doing. Um, we also use it for promotion, you know, so every time we produce a new article or a set of articles or a set of guidelines, or we're doing an event, we're actively promoting it through social media as much as we possibly can to help get word out. I think also I use it as an information source. You know, sometimes we'll find out about something because I don't check news websites every 15 minutes <laughs> and I don't have news alerts turned on because it's too distracting. So sometimes social media is a way I'll come across a story that I wouldn't otherwise known. I've always told students over the years that there's nothing wrong with social media as a helpful way of finding out about news, depending upon who you're linked to and who you follow. You know, if you uh, are in sort of a, um, a very closed group of people that all think alike and read the same sources, then you're probably not going to get very much good news or information. If you follow a diverse set of sources or people, then you're probably going to get a more interesting group of postings in your social media that may really enhance what you know and think about. And I think the last one is just entertainment, you know, um, there are certain kinds of social media, you know, and, and I think this really varies wildly depending upon the individual. You know, I use, for instance, TikTok, um, not all that often, maybe once a week, but it's strictly for me a source of, you know, fun, pleasure, distraction. I know my 
two of my children use it for that, but also they get news and information off of there. I get no news or information off of there. Um, and I'm not saying it may not be a reliable source. Again, I think it depends upon, you know, what what's sort of coming up in your your feed, right? And who you follow and who you like. So, but for me, you know, so I sort of have segmented uses depending depending on which medium I use, which social media platform I use. Well, Don, I think you're the first person I've ever met that can say confidently that they only use TikTok once a week. <laughs> so congratulations. <laughs> well, it's kind of a, it can be a black hole, you know, there's no doubt about it. And I actually, I mean, I found TikTok years ago and actually recommended it to my daughters and they were very dismissive of it first. My, one of my daughters is a big Vine fan and I said, I think this thing's going to catch on, you know, but then I really went back to it during um, COVID. And um, honestly, in sort of the darkest days of being in quarantine, I found it sort of a release for depression or being, you know, captured in my house for too long. Yeah, I mean, this is the the ultimate tension, which I, I hope that we're going to talk more about. I know Subu and Irini have things to say, but it's this, yeah, it's this dual I mean, more than dual tool where you can do a zillion different things with it. And sometimes it's hard to limit the, or to separate the harmful kinds of content or the, the harmful uses from all of these benefits that, that we get from these tools. Um, I Actually, this is a good point. I mean, the tension itself. If I reflect on my personal journey, on when I first started using social media to what my views are on it today, there's actually no connection. My views have evolved so much since I first started using it, there's a journey there. And I think reflecting on the journey, actually in that journey, one milestone is to discover that there is attention itself. When I first started, it was 2007 or eight and my wife created my Facebook account and said, get on it. I was not on Facebook. She just, she just created the account. I was on Twitter, but I wasn't actually using it. But we actually use Twitter actively in Bangalore for my, for my publication and because we had to, because that was the way, like Don said, to get the word out, to get engagement, to get people to come to your publication on the issues that they already were active on. So we were doing the things that journalists often do and also publishers do. I also found myself in one case in December 2012, and that was a point when I realized there was something up that I constantly was going back to a particular post in Facebook that I did about a woman being raped and being almost killed and then sent out to Singapore by the Indian state itself to make sure that if she died, we would not cause a riot in New Delhi. I, I posted something about it and I kept on looking for how many likes would I get, how many reactions would I get, what would people say and so on. And I, I was in Singapore at that time. So it, there was a particular reason I made that post. That's when I started realizing this is behavior that I'm producing without even realizing that I'm doing it. So let me let me try to pull together some threads that that I think I'm already hearing from our conversation. One is that to talk about social media is almost too broad because different platforms are so different and what people do with them is so different that it, it's kind of hard to, you know, congeal it all into one conversation. I think it's also becoming very clear that even just among us, uh, different users have very different use patterns um, on multiple platforms. But that also speaks to the amount of time and effort we're putting into just being on social media on these various platforms, right? Um, I think the question is not, you know, is social media good or bad? And what are the good uses and what are the bad uses as much as is it taking up too much of our lives? And is that something that we're okay with, right? Or does that too much mean uh, we've lost some agency uh, here? And and I'm, I was struck when Don was describing his use and how the center uses it, that, that it was all very much based on agency. And, and Courtney, you pointed out like, wow, you're the only person I know who can actually go on TikTok only once a week, right? That's the kind of willpower that we're saying most people don't have, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to say willpower, because I do think that these are, you know, intentional design decisions that lead to our behaviors if we let them. I don't think, I don't think it's a given, 
but that's part of what's going on. So how to use social media with agency so that you actually get out of it what you want and not what will be unpleasant and go against your values is one big question here. Yeah, those are all really good points. And I I really want to revisit what you said about agency because that really resonates with me. One thing that strikes me about this issue is the parallel between screen addiction and the kind of addiction that we're talking about with psychiatrists who use symptoms and diagnostic labels to separate someone who's abusing a substance or addicted to a substance. And some of the symptoms that they use to diagnose a quote-unquote addicted person are using more of a substance more often than intended, wanting to cut down or stop but not being able to, neglecting responsibilities and relationships, the inability to complete tasks at home. All of these things sound like they could describe someone who is addicted to their phone or addicted to social media. But when we think about addicted persons in society, a la substance abuse, we don't necessarily consider them moral failures or we don't hold them as personally responsible for their actions because they are, in one way or another, a victim of their condition. So I guess I'm wondering if in the case of the social media user, is there personal is there a personal moral failing happening? Should we hold these people morally responsible for their addiction? Because that's not necessarily what we do for addicted persons in our society who abuse substances. So... I was going to jump in on something actually was said earlier, but let me start with the agency question because it, it, it's really important. I'm glad Irina brought it up and you got into it. So I feel the word agency is uh, is really a sort of sophistication of um, human intent and action that presumes a, that also presumes a level of um, uh, I mean reflection. And, and thought and, and potentially interaction, slower interaction based on what you think you want to do and play out and exercise your, your actual power and influence uh, in life. Now, if you go to all the neuroscientists, they actually say the human brain really fully develops all of its parts, especially the prefrontal I mean, I mean cortex, it's called the PFC. Those things actually develop only till you're 25. It's only at it's only at 25 and older that your full personality around the full capacity of your brain is even developed. And then you still further change because brain plasticity makes you change your brain even as you go along. Now, if you look at teenagers, you're not there yet. So it's not surprising that the greatest demands of self-regulation are being placed on teenagers, even though the capacities have not yet fully um, been attained. And so you have this substantial problem. So if you, so how can somebody exercise their actual, I mean, ability um, is is not easy to, I mean, discuss across the age group. So it is hard. Number one, and and then number two, if you if you um, if you look at what platforms are designed for. So this is where I agree that all platforms are not the same social media entities but there but there's a common design paradigm that meta that bought instagram and uh, i mean twitter uh, reddit and all of these entities snapchat and so on overall assumed made sense which was designed for engagement and the word engagement was defined by them technologically uh, as clicks and likes and comments and virality and latching onto virality and so on. That entire paradigm was intentional, designed, and that is why we sometimes get pulled in. So yes, overall, it is a burden on people to regulate themselves because of the design of social media. The fact that Twitter suspended its retweet feature for particular experiments in 2018, 19, and so on, and the fact that Jack Dorsey went out and said, on the record that he wished he did not invent the like button, so on. It was too late. The system has already been built that way. The big tech social media is optimized for engagement as opposed to optimized for maybe agency, optimized for community, optimized for discourse. If you ask for what are they optimizing for, it was always engagement at the individual user level. I think that's partly at the heart of the addiction issue and partly at the heart of the kind of rapid attention morsels issue and so forth. Yeah. I mean, and Sue, we did a good job articulating, I think, my gut reaction about 
loss of agency and the burden being on the user, especially, I can only speak from my perspective as what's considered a young user, right, to retain their agency despite being bombarded by all of these tools that are designed to strip people of their agency. Yeah, I wanted to add that that we should uh, recognize also the fact that for quite a few years, the platforms were refusing to accept any responsibility for any of this, were only talking about their benefits and about connecting the whole world and how that was going to be so great, right? And after enough people pushed back and studies started to come out showing, and I know we're going to talk about what the studies are showing, but clearly there was a sense, a societal sense that these were not just dandy, great tools for everybody. And then at some point there was a shift in which these companies, uh, not just social media companies, other tech companies as well said, you know, you're right. We have been building maybe, you know, uh, overly addictive products and we're going to put out this whole suite of tools that will help you limit your use of our technology. But by then, first of all, the, the mistrust was all over society in terms of what the companies were proposing themselves. Um, there is also, I, I think, insufficient evidence that those tools work as intended. Um, the business models of a lot of these companies push directly against the tools that they are themselves deploying, saying that they will help users limit their use. So um, that's been another journey as well in terms of accepting responsibility and what, what to do about that responsibility. We know that for years, various companies had psychologists working within the companies to try to make the product as engaging, let's use that word as possible, right? That they had research showing what would get people to spend more time on their platform um, and that it took a really long time for them to acknowledge that there are downsides to this for, uh, I think, what ethicists would call human flourishing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's all very fair. And the, the skepticism that you talk about people having of these companies, even after they release these tools to help people regulate their use of their platforms, you still are met with this skepticism. Like, why, why should we why should we trust you when when you gave us these tools with this knowledge in the first place? And like you also said, the business model and just our knowledge that what they're doing is for profit. Primarily, it's hard to take what they say at face value. Yeah. The basic business model of social media companies is not particularly different from the media companies that came before them. It's basically advertising. So, and, and, and what you're doing with ads is you're getting attention of the people who are on your product and you're selling that attention of people to people who are producers who want to get branding, uh, visibility, leads, clicks, and so forth. So digital advertising wasn't invented by social media companies. What they invented was the custom ability to target audiences around personalities, around behaviors, around likes, around interests, around communities, and so on. This has sort of become spooky now, and there are attempts to uh, to fight back on that. But essentially, it comes down to uh, gaming people's attention um, to sell as much as you can. Now, my problem is not with ads as a business. I've literally sold ads to retailers in the city of Bangalore to get my magazine to run. So it's it's not advertising that that's actually an issue. It's how we're looking at the word attention. We have designed the online media to be so frictionless and slick that we're always on it really fast. And because our brain is operating fast as we click, it seems to not matter to, to social media companies, what is the quality of attention you're paying to the content? What's the nature of the attention you pay? That seems to have mattered less. So if you're rapidly going through things, as long as you can sell the ads, it works for the business. And that's why the whole engagement machinery has been critiqued substantially now. Yeah, the speed of information online and the speed of social life online and the rapid, yeah, just the rapid flow of information. It's sort of revolutionized the way attention works, just in terms of thinking about how I know the sheer amount of things I have the potential to read at a given time, or I have the potential to pay attention to at, at, at a given period of time that when my mind is the calculus of, okay, if I'm going to sit down at my computer and go through my feed, how much attention am I going to allot to each piece of information before I can before I should move on to the next one so that I can realistically 
get to everything that I want to get to before I want to be done researching social media addiction before I conduct this podcast today. It's like I can only allot so much of my mind at a time. And when you have this understanding that there is infinite information, it just, it totally corrupts how attention even functions. I think it's just completely unprecedented. And I don't really know what that looks like on a neurological level or. Yeah. So we've already talked about speed and we've talked about the, just the amount of information. And I would add the amount of connections, right? But I think another aspect that Courtney, your comments bring up is the whole issue of multitasking, which is not a social media per se necessarily issue, except that the social media platforms have inserted themselves so deeply into everything that they expect us to be doing whatever else we're doing and be on social media. And we know what we know for sure that multitasking is bad for us. And we know for sure that it's bad for young people in particular. It makes us do all of the things that we're trying to do at the same time badly. Um, and, you know, I think if you would have shown any of us, you know, a number of years ago, let's say, you know, a basketball game going on TV with the Twitter feed showing on the side with everybody commenting at warp speed, not able to read each other's comments or to respond to each other's comments while watching the game. I mean, it's just absurd to think that this is going to work for human brains. Um, but but that's where we are. And by the time you are also on multiple platforms um, and you're trying to do, like you said, maybe you're trying to do your homework, but there's the siren song of, you know, notifications or wondering whether you've gotten, like Subu said, some likes for your posts. And we are all absolutely, I don't care how old we are and how wise we are. We're all totally vulnerable to those things. Um, it's It's massively distracting for all of us from all of the many important things that we want to do. And I just want to, I want to tell a very quick story. And I know Don has things he wants to add to all of this, but I remember being in a meeting where a technologist said um, what woke him up was when his child drew one of those drawings, you, you know, you see on people's fridges of the family, you know, mom, dad, and me and my sister and our dog. And, you know, they're all these little stick figures. And the dad in the drawing was looking down at his phone. That technologist got the message. Uh, and he was talking about why he decided that he needed to work on some of these tools. But I think, a lot of people, to Subu's point about self-awareness, uh, might not even have gotten, are, are just on that little hamster wheel, right? Trying to run and catch up and keep up with all of the, you know, all of the news or all of the platforms and not realizing they're that dad in the drawing. So, uh, you know, as Subu pointed out, this, this whole idea of uh, advertising, you know, that's sort of the basis for the economy of a lot of the social media is not new. And it, it's been going on for a long time. And to be honest with you, for, for me, from an ethical perspective, it's not what worries me most. I, I don't think um, having a social media platform uh, nudge me towards buy a certain brand of mattress is such a nefarious thing that it's, you know, that it causes alarm. I mean, because there's been resistance and suspicion of media all along, you know, from comic books to, tele I mean, television was supposed to be the great killer of American attention. We were going to have a dumber society because of television. I don't see too many people up in arms over somebody streaming, um, you know, 10 episodes of their favorite TV show and watching them in rapid succession right now. So, so our attention has shifted and our concern. We live in a culture, in a, in a, in the United States, where we have a very strong sense of anti-regulation. And that linked with a group of legislators who don't understand the technology, I think is particularly nefarious. Limits that need to be put on and that could be put on. And that we've been encouraging technologists to think about and to design more ethical products so that they can self-regulate. But it's obvious that in some cases, they don't care. <laughs> the companies simply aren't concerned. And so in that case, it is, it's, it's the government's obligation, I think, 
to step in and do something. Right. I mean, I think that's a really great point, especially when you're talking about this this other criticism that's common or that's been common for throughout history, especially recent history that's levied against new technologies. It inspires this sense of moral panic. Well, X is going to be the end of society as we know it, culture as we know it. What do we do up in arms? We said it about television, we said it about things in the past, dating back to Socrates when he said that written language was going to be the bane of, of memory. And like, of, like there's all of these. Comic, comic books caused 60 years ago an, an outrage in the United States that comic books were going to be the death of young people's intellect, and they were influencing them in, in sort of nefarious ways. So, yeah, we, we it's not a new question. What's new is the power of the technology, uh, people's, uh, I think, ab- ability to discern when they're being manipulated, and I also think um, a, lot, a number of bad players. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And to solve this question or to respond to this criticism, you have to be able to prove that social media is like qualitatively different than some of these earlier technologies that didn't end up corrupting society in, in this substantial way that everyone panics about or projects will happen. There has to be something different, something different here in the case of social media, maybe in the design of the products so that we can actually say social media is bad. We need to do something. It's not like comic books. It's not like television. It's not like the written language. <laughs> but we did but we did things about all of those things. There are regulations around all of those things. It's I, I would totally disagree that those things did not in fact change society and maybe in some bad, bad ways as well as good ways. I don't think this is a moral panic. I hate the term moral panic. It basically says you're some kind of a you know scold for you know raising any criticism. Um I think um, I think television and the written language and all of those things change society. I think there are other products that were designed in order to keep people coming from more. Adding sugar into every food possible um, is another thing that happens, and it you know it's not sufficiently regulated, and it has an impact on society, and we all feel it, right? So just because there are other things that have happened before doesn't mean it's not happening in this case. Um, and I think with social media, one difference is that it's it's in our pockets. It's very personal. It's this weird mix of personal and work and sort of, um, you know, civic uh, engagement all in one. Sometimes if you use it that way, you don't have to. But that's what they try to do uh, all in one platform. The whole question of our role as amplifiers is different here. I mean, Subu touched on that when he talked about people who act like journalists, even though they wouldn't call themselves journalists. We we are participants in this game in a way that we aren't with other media or other products, right? You are not going to you know buy enough newspapers and run to everybody's house and drop off the front page to make sure that they saw, but you can do that now. You can be that distributor. That's a vastly different thing. The fact that social media became something that we engaged with from when we were so young, more you know, people of your age, Courtney, but I think that there's this assumption that this is how things have always been and this is how things always should be. And, and again, a lack of agency and realizing, no, you can design different social media platforms and you can put different, different um, boundaries in place. And by the way, um, I think some uh, potential and even now coming regulation is very harmful. I think we're going to see because of the concerns that were left unaddressed for so long, you're going to see some regulations that are not useful. You know, I'm thinking specifically of the law that just passed in Utah. I, I don't know how they're going to manage to enforce this, but apparently parents have to consent to teens. Um, you know, opening social media accounts and they they are, you know, going to have the passwords of every child's social media account up to the age of 18, I believe. So imagine being a 16-year-old and not being able to use these. I, I, I think that's really problematic or not being able to use them without, you know, feeling like your parents are looking over your shoulder. So I think we have to be really careful in how we respond to very real problems 
um, without making them worse. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm not sure how something like that would ever be enforced or enforced effectively. And it is another one of the things that just makes me frustrated because I know my own experience as someone who was very young when they were given this technology, which brings me to a whole other dimension of this conversation that I've been wanting to talk about, which is what some researchers are now calling the mental illness epidemic. I wanted to cite some stats from the American College Health Association and from the CDC's Biannual Youth Risk Behavior Survey, both of which measure, I would say, the changes in mental health in young people since around 2010 or 2011 when we saw the introduction of smartphones and social media or saw both of those things really take off. And according to the CDC, most teen girls, 57% of teen girls now say that they experience persistent sadness or hopelessness. And 30% of teen girls now say that they have seriously considered suicide. The American College Health Association, which basically just surveys teens on college campuses, says that there has been a 134% increase since 2010 of people reporting anxiety, 106% increase in depression, 72% increase of students with ADHD, 57% increase with students with bipolar disorder, 100% increase of students with anorexia. It's just kind of all across the board for young people, we're seeing that mental illness is worsening. And I want to be careful because I know some researchers say that the statistics or the research is still inconclusive because of correlation does not equal causation re reasons. But as more studies come out, the evidence is becoming clear. And I can cite my own experiences and I can give testimony about the experiences of my friends and of my little sister. And there's definitely a problem, a problem that I've had to deal with in my own life. And soon society will be full of people who were given this technology when they were very young. And I don't think that regulation like the one that Utah is proposing is going to solve this problem. Arena, I think that you're absolutely right to be skeptical. <laughs> it just makes me sad to think about a world full of people who knew no alternative. And I don't know why that's this nostalgic, sad feeling that I have, because it's really, I am one of those people who can't remember seriously a world in which I did not have social media or a smartphone. One of the pushes from the get-go, from the very first platforms, has been for self-revelation. We are encouraged to reveal ourselves and to be quote-unquote authentic and to tell all of our hundreds of social media friends what we're doing, right? Combine that, which makes us very vulnerable, and think about it, especially if you're a, a, a young girl right? When you're not exactly, you know, at your most confident, most of us were not at that age. Some of us probably still aren't, but, um, and combine that with a system that allows uh, feedback and input from people who don't really care, who can like or dislike something, who can comment rudely, and you post a picture and they will say, you look bad. And of course, that's going to have an input, uh, you know, negative input on people's mental health. And that the framing, the push, the fact that you were supposed to do that constantly, that that revealing of the self. I mean, I'm, I, I still can't get over the fact that people used to describe those who were maybe on Twitter, on Facebook, just to read posts, but not post themselves. They used to be called lurkers. That's not lurking. That's reading. Right. Why is it? Why does it make you a lurker if you read what other people write and you don't necessarily post yourself? You might be absolutely wise in using a social media platform that way to learn things and not to expose yourself. So I think we have to think about that aspect of social media that didn't exist in all of these other things that we talked about before. And as Subu mentioned, some platforms experimented with like you know, making the number of likes disappear because they knew that that was definitely having a negative impact or it was prompting, you know, girls to post certain kinds of pictures of themselves and not others because they would get more likes, right? Um, all of these are things that, that train, especially young, impressionable users who 
aren't sure exactly what they're looking for on these platforms, right? The, like, the opposite of what Don was describing. Well, we are using the social media to get the word out for our you know, services and what we do, and it's a great way. The opposite of what Subu is describing when he talks about um, you know, the, the imbalances of informational power and how it can empower people who otherwise couldn't. I'm thinking about the average user going on this, you know, kind of new tool and, and revealing themselves. Yeah. I mean, it sows a, a deep insecurity and those lurkers might not be well-intentioned in the way that you described. They're there to read and learn. They might just be terrified, <laughs> terrified to engage at all or post because they can see that there are consequences in engaging. I mean, maybe for those folks who are already prone to feeling insecure for home life reasons or whatever other background reasons are particularly terrified to engage at all. And then, yes, you have lurkers who, like me, I mean, I don't post on Twitter, but I use Twitter because it's a great source of news and information. I mean, there are obviously different ways to lurk, but in response to what you just described, it sows a deep insecurity in people and in I can only speak for young girls, but, but I can speak for young girls. And I, I've witnessed my friends and I witness my little sister and I witness people younger than me. And it's 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 sad. And it's, it, it follows you too, because not only are you wired to be insecure, you're wired to rely on a particular kind of feedback for activities beyond just like posting selfies online, like maybe in the workplace, right? You are wired to receive a particular kind of feedback when you contribute to any social space or group space. And if you don't get the the, the like button equivalent at work, you get this anxious feeling that you get when you were 15 and like you posted a selfie and you didn't get more than 20 likes. It's like, okay, no one's liking my work at work. <laughs> and I don't know what that equivalent is, but it it, it trains your brain, at least in my experience or listening to, to people who are my peers talk about that. There's this weird validation cycle that you carry with you to activities offline that don't have the same parallels. It's not maybe as productive at work to be trained to think that way. It's never productive anywhere. And, and, and just to be clear, you are not lurkers. The people who are behaving that way are not lurkers, are people who are fighting the social media uh, push for a certain kind of interaction. Right. And I mean, I do think that maybe that's still possible, too, to take control of how we use the platforms. And I wish that those interventions came sooner. And I know that the Markula Center has tools, an ethical toolkit for design and engineering, correct? I mean... For new kinds of technologies, social media platforms, maybe. What I'm curious what our toolkit would say to a company like Facebook if we could pretend, maybe in a thought experiment kind of way, that you were working with an early form of Facebook or working with an early form of a social media company. What would our, what can we offer or encourage people to, to look at? Well, some of it would be, you know, having them ask the questions we ask people to ask when they're thinking about an ethical decision. So for instance, you know, we, we have this idea of a common good. So is their product helping people work towards a common good or is it destructive in some way? And if it's destructive, what can they do to alter their algorithm and their transparency to instead work towards a common good? Or, for instance, uh, we use care ethics. And we've all seen examples in social media, in Facebook, of people caring for each other on Facebook. But we've also seen destructive and horrible things on Facebook as well. So how can they best restructure their algorithm to encourage more caring? What incentives can they do to help people care more and what disincentives can they help build in technologically uh, to discourage bad behavior? And are they really going to take that seriously? Yeah, I think you have to ask yourself as a company, whether it's Facebook or any other Facebook, what's our purpose? What are our values? And is the way we execute what we do each day associated with those values? And so if our values, uh, if we've decided to be an ethical company, and if we've decided that we can make a profit and not hurt people, 
if we realize that people are not a means to an end, and that end is to get as rich as possible and to help our stockholders get as rich as possible, if instead we see human beings as having value in and of themselves, then I think it completely changes the equation of how we run the company. You know, on the lines um, of what Don was saying, at the tactical level, one of the lessons you see being learned uh, literally publicly is that some of the newer designs that are emerging from startups and other um, community forum software developers that plug into social media are the opposite of the like button. For example, they say, respect. I respect this post. Or there's a new term that I heard was used in a button recently as a reaction that says, I found this post clarifying. So you click something that says you found it clarifying. That means you understood something from it and so on. So, and this is just tactical. I'm not saying this is all going to work and save the world. I'm not saying it's not going to work, but it plays on to what Don was talking about fundamental design. Like what are you designing for? To me, what it shows really is that the earlier paradigm of, of social media with all the business goals it was meant for optimized for engagement was still designed around feelings. There's a fundamental difference between feelings-led behavior, which tends to be rapid. It also is emotional. It can be good emotions. It can also be hard emotions that are bad and outrage and anger and so on. There's a difference between feeling, feelings-led behavior and thoughtful reasoning, deliberation, which have emotions in it. So it's a hybrid thought and feelings together. And the current generation of social media design is privileging feelings-led behavior overall because of how they designed all these virality features, including shares, reposts, likes, and so on. Now, we've got to move away from that paradigm into the overall sense of the whole person. What does the whole person behave like when they are self-reflective, uh, collaborative, and so forth? And those kinds of designs weren't even tested before. Now they're getting tested and there are actually academics working in different universities. Some of them have come out of social media saying, I want to build a new optimization function that's based on a different set of values, values altogether, what people value. I had a conversation yesterday with Ravi Iyer, who's the managing director of the Psychology of Technology Institute at USC. Uh, and he left Facebook. He left Meta. He was working on optimizations there as a product manager. And he has a very specific conception of how he wants to redesign what people value as their experience on social media. And the fact that he's had to step out to build a new kind of optimization functions tells me that whatever was going on there was just already wedded to the you know, fundamental design. So we have a long way to go. I just felt that I just needed to give more examples of this. Um, I wanted to go back to... Um... To Courtney's question about what we might say to folks designing these things, because we do have this ethical toolkit. And I would basically say they should go and check it out because there's a number of tools, Courtney, it's too much to get into. But I wanted to, to point to two specific things. So one, in terms of ethical analysis of any decision or any product-related decision, um, identifying the stakeholders involved is huge. And it's really what, what allows you to even conduct the ethical analysis in the first place. And working in groups to identify the impact that stakeholders, both directly and indirectly impacted, is, is a necessity. You're not going to identify everybody working alone. So that's the first step is really being cognizant of how important it is to identify the stakeholders that you're about to impact. And then Two of the tools in our ethical toolkit, one specifically talks about expanding the ethical circle. So making sure that you are actually listening to the stakeholders who will be impacted, that you're not just trying to imagine what their positions might be or their needs might be or their fear might be, but that you actually listen to them. And then the need for follow-up feedback channels that once you design and put something out into the world, you should make it easy for the users to tell you how they see it being used because you're not going to be able to anticipate all the uses and misuses um, on your own. And I think a lot of these companies were notoriously bad and some still are in terms of allowing for feedback. Um, so that would be already an improvement, that sense of, 
listening to the stakeholders before you deploy something as you're designing it, and then allowing that continuous um, flow of input. Yeah, that's really helpful. The Markowitz Center in that document talks about the tools, if used correctly, um, will be well integrated, made explicit, regularized, and operationalized um, internally. I'm wondering, I mean, some of those seem kind of obvious to me, but I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to what that looks like. Yeah, it means that they are hiring people and training people to care about these things. It means that they are making sure that the tools are actually implemented, that they're required. They're not just sort of out there as optional. Uh, it means that that ethical design um, and development is rewarded, um, you know, and financially and otherwise and with promotions within the companies. Um, there are a number of things without which just doing an ethics training or pointing people to, you know, well-intentioned tools is not going to make much of a difference. So some of this absolutely comes to business ethics decisions um, and support from folks who are high enough in the company and who build a program that will be resilient and remain even if the champions leave the company. Um, that becomes part of the culture of a company. Without that, again, the tools are just tools. You need to pick them up and use them. Yeah, I think you're right to place responsibility on those champions or those business execs, because that's where it all starts. And I know we were thinking about this hypothetically, but in a very real sense, do you think it's possible for a company like Facebook after all that we've learned through leaks or just from witnessing their negligence or watching them fail to take basic social responsibility, do you think it's possible to see any real change, even if just at a cultural level at the company? Would we ever see a company like Facebook shift gears? Will a, a large company already invested substantially in the older paradigm that everybody is now I mean, critiquing, or at least I mean, most people are, will they shift? I don't know. I don't know if given capital, given investments, given ad revenues, how easily, I mean, if, if you look at oil, just take oil as an example. Big oil still exists. Big oil is still trying to disrupt the policy regulation area. They're still using PR money to put features on news organizations to make it look like they actually care about the planet. So I'm going to leave that up to Don on whether these big entities can actually shift. But I'm seeing that smaller companies are able to get into the space. So maybe the disruption will come, even though these are large centralized platforms that have millions of us online. It's not easy to move us to, to new entities. It may be that the better designs or the people who use the ethical toolkit will actually come from the smaller companies in a novel way to the degree that people as part of self-regulation might feel that those are healthier experiences to have and still be social. And then, you know, that kind of shift can actually threaten them. Yeah. I mean, what I'm getting from you is that they need to be incentivized to do so. Yeah. I was about to say that we are ignoring the elephant that is about to enter the room, which is regulation, legislation. So first of all, yes, I think it's possible for companies to change their behavior. Just I think it's possible for all of us as social media users to change our behavior. Um, but in the case of companies, I think they're going to have to change some behavior because of laws that are coming. Um, like, for example, the California privacy law that allows people to you know, ask from companies what data they have about them and to ask that it be deleted and, um, you know, laws can be designed badly or they can be good and they can empower people and give them the kind of agency boost that we were talking about. And the companies will have to comply with those laws. The short answer is, of course, they can change. Uh, will they, I think, is a bigger question. But we've seen major companies, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies go through incredible transformations, but it usually comes when the CEO changes or in a time of remarkable crisis. You know, um, what we've been hoping is because of the threat of coming regulation, because of pressure from folks like us and, and other critics, um, because of pressure from their own employees that 
these social media platforms would do more. And and some have been working in good faith to try to change. But if your question is, can they change? Of course they can change. But do they have the will to change? Um, that's the question. Uh because we're, we've been talking on a skeptical frame, the, the, the bits of good news that I see are there's already substantially more awareness amongst people using social media, just everyday people, on the fact that they can be manipulated, the fact that deep fakes and systematic fakes are out there, synthetic media is out there. So just yesterday, I met a friend of mine posted something on our WhatsApp group and deleted it immediately. And a bunch of others asked him, what did he delete it? Like, we want to know what you deleted. And then he said, it's it's a deep fake. And then I had to ask him, what is the deep fake? So we had a bunch of, and, and, we, and we found out that what he saw was that Australian video of Bill Gates having been interviewed by that ABC anchor, which was completely synthetic audio. But it got debunked pretty quickly by Reuters. And because a lot of media organizations now have better forensic capacity to do their bit. So we're now at the point where th there is more happening, I mean, bottom up between just how users encounter these things on, on social media. So I, I think that whole capacity building should, needs to also include more I mean, self-regulation on, on, on all of the other issues. So just overall, I think there's more good happening as well. Yeah, I mean, just as a final point, I've stated this already, but I can only speak from my own perspective, as we all can, my own biases. And I, like I said, got Instagram in 2012. When I was 12, I was a part of that, that guinea pig group <laughs> where self-awareness or awareness of the consequences wasn't possible. And so my deep skepticism likely comes from a place where I was given these tools without any warnings or without like this social phasing in, like we're post- we're post that phase in process now where parents know to warn their kids, teachers know to warn their students. Well, yeah, Irene, you're shaking your head. But <laughs> for the most part, though, Sue, you're right. There are reasons to be hopeful. There's a different cultural narrative. There's hope. There's hope on the horizon um, to be able to regulate the tools, to educate yourself and to be aware. You've been listening to Wild Beasts, a podcast from the Markla Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Thanks for tuning in. And check out our website for more episodes about ethics.